0: Conrad Schwartz wrote the book on psychotic depression, literally, and today he shows us why it's missed and how to recognize it. Welcome to the Carlat Psychiatry Podcast, keeping psychiatry honest since two thousand and three.
1: I'm Chris Aiken, the editor in chief of the Carlat Psychiatry Report,
0: and I'm Kelly Newsom, a psychiatric NP and a dedicated reader of every issue. In 2000, a group of NIMH-funded researchers began enrolling patients for what would become the largest prospective clinical trial of major depressive disorder ever conducted. They called it STAR*D, and part of its claim to fame was that the study enrolled patients with only minimal exclusion criteria, patients that would better reflect the ones we see in real life. Among the 4,041 subjects were all kinds of patients we usually don't see in the aseptic world of clinical trials. Patients with chronic depression, suicidality, medical problems, and even substance use disorders, as long as they didn't require detoxification. But some were excluded from STAR-D, those with eating disorders or OCD, for example, and patients with psychotic or bipolar depression. But the STAR-D researchers are a lot like you and me, making tough judgment calls in the face of ambiguous information. Bipolar disorder and psychosis can't be ruled out definitively. These are diagnoses that often reveal themselves gradually over careful long-term follow-up, which raises the question, what if a few patients with bipolar or psychotic depression snuck into the study? In 2011, Roy Perlis and colleagues looked into that question, and here's what they found.
1: Before enrolling in the STAR*D d trial, Patients were given six screening questions for psychosis and another six for mania. For psychosis, these were questions about being spied on, plotted against, having special powers, being controlled, or about events that others said did not occur, as well as hearing voices and seeing things. For mania, they were questions about elevated mood, extreme self confidence, decreased need for sleep, talkativeness, new projects and impulsive activities. These screening tests were followed up with a diagnostic interview, which was ultimately used as the deciding factor in whether or not to enroll the patient in the Stardy study. But if you do this kind of thing in practice, and we recommend you do, you'll find a lot of cases where patients answer yes on paper, but then say no when the same kind of items are explored in a face-to-face interview. So what Dr. Perlis and colleagues did was look back at the patients who had answered yes to some of those manic or psychotic symptoms, but who were ultimately enrolled in STAR-D because they were cleared from a diagnosis of mania or psychosis in the clinician interview. And what he found surprised us. It was the soft psychotic signs, not the soft bipolar signs, that predicted whether or not the patient would respond to the antidepressant-driven therapies in the STAR-D trial. We would have guessed the opposite. We would have thought that bipolarity contributed to non-response, but Perlis found no evidence of that. And subsequent STAR-D analyses came up with the same answer. Classic markers of bipolarity, like family history of bipolar disorder and subsyndromal manic symptoms, and even genetic markers for bipolarity, did not predict response in the trial. This is not to say that bipolar features don't matter. Other large studies have found that these soft bipolar signs do predict a poor response to antidepressants. Few things, though, are black and white in psychiatry. And different studies arrive at different conclusions, probably for the same reason that different patients with the same diagnosis can have very different responses to medications. What this stardi analysis did teach us is that we may need to pay more attention to psychotic depression. The common sense idea about psychotic depression is that these patients are suffering from two syndromes psychosis, in the form of delusions or hallucinations, and depression. And they need two types of treatments to get well, an antidepressant and an antipsychotic. But this month, we spoke with Dr. Conrad Schwartz. Dr. Schwartz has spent his life studying psychotic depression, and he had a different take.
2: It's pretty frustrating to treat psychotic depression with medications. For males, I like to use bupropion. I have not had good success with tricyclics for males, but I have with bupropion, well, butrin. If these medications don't work, then I'll add lithium. After that, I don't have much hope for medications. Of course, if I'm in a situation, and I have sometimes practiced in a situation where ECT is not available and I have to use medications, then I turn to using antipsychotics, sometimes with or without benzos.
1: You mean antipsychotics in addition to antidepressants?
2: Yeah, in addition to the antidepressant.
1: Okay, so it sounds like antipsychotics are second or third line for you. Yes. Dr. Schwartz was not very surprised when he saw the STAR-D results. Instead, he prefers ECT which has remission rates approaching 100% in psychotic depression. Wait, did we just say remission rates approaching 100%? Okay, that was to get your attention. The actual remission rate of psychotic depression in ECT is 95%. That figure comes from a large NIMH-sponsored CORE study Of 253 patients with psychotic or non-psychotic depression who underwent ECT, remission rates, not response but actual remission, were 83% for non-psychotic and 95% for psychotic depression. But it's not just the lack of efficacy that steers Dr. Schwartz away from antipsychotics. He also suspects that these medications might interfere with functional recovery in the disorder. The goal
2: of diagnosis and treatment for psychotic depression is recovery to full premorbid function. This goal is implied with treating any mood disorder. And that's a big difference from treating schizophrenia, delusional disorder, or even schizoaffective disorder. So achieving this goal, as I see it, requires minimizing antipsychotic drugs, at least the duration of the antipsychotic drugs, avoiding them long term. Then there are these impairments caused by antipsychotic drugs, the frontal lobe syndromes, the apathy, the disexecutive syndrome and rarely the orbital frontal syndrome. But the dis-executive syndrome is really pretty common. Patients have difficulty solving problems, dealing with the complexity of interpersonal relationships, taking initiative, multitasking. They become relatively dependent and passive and quiet. And then they don't see this. They're satisfied taking the antipsychotic. Their personalities have changed into being passive
1: not something that's readily picked up on in empirical research, though.
2: That's right. And even the evaluations of the effects of antipsychotic drugs in treating mania and depression don't look for these frontal lobe syndromes, the disexecutive, the orbital frontal, and the apathy. They talk about somnolence. The olanzapine talks about personality changes. But I think the personality changes they're referring to are actually executive syndrome, and orbital frontal syndrome that they are describing with euphemism.
1: I was surprised to hear an expert on psychotic depression question the use of antipsychotics. After all, the APA guidelines recommend an antidepressant-antipsychotic combo as first-line therapy for psychotic depression in their 2010 guidelines. But Dr. Schwartz forced me to take a closer look at those guidelines, and I didn't like what I saw. The APA cited three references to support their endorsement of this antipsychotic antidepressant combination, but only one of those references actually supported their conclusion, and that one was a small study with so many design flaws only 18 patients were enrolled in this three-arm study that used no placebos that the APA would normally not even mention it. Then the APA acknowledges that there is another study that actually refutes their conclusion. This double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized trial found that nortriptyline worked just as well on its own as it did when combined with the antipsychotic perfenazine. And this study did use a placebo, and it was twice as large as the one that the APA chose to side with. But what about the other two studies they used as support? Well, one was a meta analysis that found a slightly higher response rate with combination versus antidepressant monotherapy. But here, the difference was not statistically significant. And the APA never draws recommendations from a non significant p value. The third study was one that compared antipsychotic monotherapy with antidepressant antipsychotic combination, yet yeah, concluded that antipsychotics don't work well on their own in this psychotic mood disorder, but it doesn't tell us anything about antidepressant monotherapy. The confusion in the APA's recommendations reflect a more general confusion in the field. A 2012 report found that practice guidelines were all over the place in their recommendations on psychotic depression, as was an opinion poll of psychiatrists. And the confusion is understandable. We simply don't have definitive studies in this common condition. Psychotic depression has the same prevalence as schizophrenia. So what have we learned more recently? After the 2010 APA guidelines, an updated meta-analysis came out in 2012, concluding that the antidepressant-antipsychotic combo does have a small benefit over monotherapy. However, the effect size was just 0.25, which is a little larger than the effect of buspirone and generalized anxiety, and a little smaller than the effect of omega-3s in depression. Arguably, you'd see a similar difference if you compared antipsychotic augmentation with antidepressant monotherapy in non-psychotic depression. So it's not clear that the antipsychotic is uniquely addressing the illness, but if you do start an antipsychotic, how long do you need to continue it in psychotic depression? That question was answered by a recent large trial, the STOP-PD study. They began by randomizing 259 patients with psychotic depression to either sertraline plus olanzapine or olanzapine on its own. At the end of the 12-week trial, remission rates were nearly double with the combination therapy, which tells us that antipsychotics don't work well on their own. It says nothing about antidepressant monotherapy because they didn't test that group. A more interesting answer came in the second phase of the STOP-PD, when they took the patients who responded to that combination therapy, and then they randomized them to either discontinue the antipsychotic and stay on the sertraline, or stay on both medications after two months of recovery. Here are two takeaways from that study. Relapses were much higher, 55% versus 20%, in those who came off the antipsychotic. But nearly all of the relapses occurred soon after stopping the olanzapine. Why does that matter? Well, we generally find that depressive relapses are much higher when antipsychotics are stopped after like two months of recovery. As they did in this trial, compared to when they are stopped after a longer period of six months of recovery. And the fact here that nearly all of the relapses occurred during that vulnerable window, during the first six months of recovery, suggests that they might have had better results if they had waited a little longer and perhaps tapered it a bit slower, as withdrawal psychosis can occur when you come off an antipsychotic. But why come off the antipsychotic at all? Well, in this study, physical outcomes were markedly better in those who came off the olanzapine. Not just metabolic ones, but the risk of falls as well. Here's the bottom line. Antipsychotics and antidepressants can work in combination for psychotic depression but they're not as effective as we'd like. And if you do use them, watch for tolerability problems on the antipsychotic. And if those tolerability issues start to stack up, then consider tapering off the antipsychotic slowly, perhaps over two to three months, and wait at least six months of full recovery before doing so. Now, if we look at all the medication options for psychotic depression, Lithium and nortriptyline also have some support, and Dr. Swartz has seen good results with both of these. But ECT is the gold standard, and these depressions are often severe enough to warrant a referral to ECT. The problem, though, is that much like with bipolar depression, psychotic depression is hard to diagnose. Even in the rigorous setting of an academic medical center, One out of three cases of psychotic depression were missed. In our online interview, Dr. Schwartz describes two types of psychotic depression to look out for one where psychosis predominates, it can look a bit like schizophrenia or delusional disorder, and one where depression dominates, which can look like uncomplicated major depression. He also pulls up revealing research about the overlap of trauma, psychotic depression, and PTSD, and the potential role of psychotherapy there.
0: Conrad Swartz is Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry at Southern Illinois University in Springfield, Illinois. He is the author, along with Edward Shorter, of the 2012 textbook, Psychotic Depression from Cambridge University Press.
1: Could your practice benefit from a daily dose of psychiatric research? If so, follow my personal tweet in LinkedIn or Twitter, where I'll be posting a practice-changing study every day. Search for Chris Aiken, MD. So far, we've had studies on new antidepressant augmentation strategies, cognitive effects of antidepressants, probiotics and schizophrenia, and an evidence-based look at which kind of jokes work best in depression. And join us in two weeks where we'll review this latest roundup of the research in our Monday podcast.
0: Get your CME credits for this episode by following the link in the show notes. The Carlight Report is one of the few CME publications that depends entirely on subscribers. Thank you for helping us stay free
2: of commercial support.